Back in bold, finally getting back on the podcast game. If you've been keeping up with Bold Perceptions, you've been seeing my travel vlogs. I'm hitting that YouTube hard. It's all about consistency uh, on the tube, but uh, the podcasts have been kind of sporadic. You know, every week, two weeks now, instead of our usual once a week at minimum the last three years. But I was approached by a company that wanted to promote this uh, this man here we have on today. He's going to talk about a nice subject, a subject that I'm very biased on. It's uh, the scam of academia. Not necessarily that, but the college cartel. It's Shahad, correct? Shahaj. Shahaj. And I was reading yeah. um, the outline they kind of sent me, and you're, you're from India. You grew up in a poor background, worked your ass off, and you made it to these higher levels. And when we were on the phone the other day, you're at Columbia right now, correct? Yeah, so I'm at Columbia Law School. Just to correct the record slightly, I'm actually not from India. My grandparents are Indian. My parents are immigrants to the States. Um, and so I grew up in the States. But, um, you know, I, I talk about sort of, you know, this, this immigrant background because one of the things that's really important, I think, in the Asian American community especially, is this major emphasis on, you know, getting prestigious credentials, um, moving through the education system, and going to hyper-elite colleges. Um, and so that's sort of like the culture I was steeped in. And, you know, as I've started to reflect more on, you know, what is right with that, what's not wrong with that, um, you know, I, I've come up with, with some insights as to how I think we need to be changing not only the culture um, within uh, these communities, but also like the political economy of how these schools work. And so that's what the book is really about. 100%. Yeah. So it was your grandpa that was study, studying underneath the lights, you know, day and night right. just to get an opportunity in the USA, correct? Right, that's right. That's right. That's amazing. And then also now he's got a, a grandchild who's Americanized and says it's stupid to do education now. No, no, I'm giving <laughs> you I'm giving you shit. So you're 24 though, and you're in Columbia. Like you're not some schmuck, right? That's right. That's right. And this idea, it was, you know, throughout your childhood, the focus of education and, and whatnot, like it was forced on you, like and it, it came to you one day that you're like, hey, maybe there's some other routes or there are some problems with this direction. Why did you come up with this idea to write to the college cartel? Yeah, sure. So uh, let me just tell you two stories uh, from my life that were that were um, I think were really formative, although I didn't recognize it at the time. Um, so I grew up uh, right outside of DC in like a middle class suburb. Um, the area is called Fairfax County, um, and you know it's a big immigrant community over there. And there's a high school named Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, which is one of these like selected high schools. Um, it's a public school, it's a magnet school, but you have to take a test to get in. And so as you might imagine, um, just like with college admissions or any other kind of selective admissions, you know, the pressure starts to build quite early um, to, you know, study for this exam, to do well on the exam, and to gain admission into the school. Um, and so, you know, I was always steeped in this culture of like, let's climb the next rung of the prestige ladder. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was the first one. Um, once I got into that high school, uh, and I was a junior, there was a, there was a scandal that occurred um, that got covered in a lot of the mainstream press. And it was actually a very formative moment for me. And so what happened was there was this girl named Sarah Kim. And, uh, you know, as, as fall turned into winter, turned into spring, you know, the talk of, of every year is always about who's applying, what colleges, who's getting in where at this high school. And this girl, Sarah Kim, uh, told everyone that not only did she get into Harvard, but she also got into Stanford. And not only that, but they'd come up with a special arrangement so that she could go to both schools 
um, in a two by two program where you do two years at Harvard and then two years at Stanford. Now, this is something they've never done before. Um, and so she told the, the entire school this. Uh, you know, naturally, some people started to ask questions because while Sarah Kim was a very clever girl, you know, she wasn't so much more clever than anyone else. And it certainly wasn't clear to the rest of us why someone like Sarah Kim would get this specialized program designed at two of the most prestigious schools uh, in America. And as people started to look into it, one day uh, in everyone's inbox, an email arrived from a Harvard math professor saying to everyone at this high school that we should stop looking into the Sarah Kim story because she, not only was she very gifted, but her research was amazing, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, we later found out that that email was forged. Uh, she had, uh, you know, hacked, I think, uh, some email servers or someone close to her had done this uh, to basically quell some of the rumors that were circling, which is that she was lying. And, you know, it was a, it was a really sad story because um, her father was a uh, South Korean person. Um, and in South Korea, Sarah Kim was reported on as this genius girl, um, as soon as she started telling people that she'd gotten into both of these schools, again, you know, going back to this theme of, of uh, you know, the immigrant, Asian immigrant culture of, of applying to these hyper prestigious colleges and that being a really big deal, a real marker of status. And, um, you know, this is something that blew up in South Korea. And so one day as I'm walking into school, there's a South Korean news crew asking a lot of students at this school whether or not they knew the genius girl. Obviously, as the story started to unravel, you know, this triumph story turned into a tragedy. Um, you know, her reputation was ruined. She was painted in the South Korean media and in the media in the States as someone who is lying, someone who is crazy, and so on and so forth. And so already at this, like, very young age, you're seeing, like, you know, some of the more toxic elements of this, like, prestige culture, um, you know, ruining a girl's reputation. And obviously, it's very easy to look at Sarah Kim and say she's a liar. She deserved what she got. But, you know, I would always turn around and ask questions about what are the social structures that we're encouraging that, you know, status is allocated in this clearly toxic way. And, you know, Sarah Kim is far from the only student who's done stuff like this or got caught in scandals like this. When I was at Georgetown, and this is the second story, um, there was a girl there who had gotten in. Hey, let me pop the, up. Let me pop up yes. quick, though, before go you go into this Georgetown story. OK. Sure. Sometimes I think these people. Um, it proves their smartness when they go through all these behind the scenes thing and the fake mm -hmm. letters. And I I've met so many people doing this content stuff that mm -hmm. from the outside, everything aligns with what they're trying to show, right? That mm -hmm. the amount of followers, the engagement, um, you know, articles, you Google their names. If you dig past, you know, a couple pages on Google, all of a sudden you see everything fold apart. There's so many companies out here now that will write like, you know, Fox 29, it's a, it's a website where they get fake articles written, but it looks like it's some sort of Fox, you know, news right. uh, website or, or CNN 11 or like just right. weird stuff like this. Um, obviously, everyone knows about Russian and, and Polish um, uh, troll farms. I've met people, I'm in Poland right now, who um, have done business with it or who know people who are in it. And they, they can literally change public opinion on anyone, like for good and for bad. There's a famous movie in Poland called The Hater. It was um, in 2020, it was actually released. And it was really about uh, these Polish troll farms, like uh, messing around in politics and even uh, social media influencers. And it's fascinating to me, these people, I, I had one on this podcast. I didn't record with them. My, my former co-host did. Uh, everything checked out from the outside. And uh, I, after you record with them, I'm like, something just feels off to me. So I started digging and digging and digging. I found out it was all bullshit. But he's made a, a company out of it. He's made a crap ton of money off uh, um, 
our need to this prestige culture, the social media, the the blue check marks, right? So like mm -hmm. some of these people, I think, you know, they're playing the game. And and if they can play the game and win, it is what it is. But uh that's interesting. The Sarah Kim, it reminded me totally of the the characters I've met with, you know, um through this content creating. You know, it's funny, the, the things you you were just saying, it reminds me of another story. I'll just do this detour very quickly. Uh, in 2007, there was a girl named Azia Kim, who uh, was, it seemed everyone, a student at Stanford. She was there for uh, seven or eight months. Um, she was living in a dorm. She would go to class. She was taking exams. Um, and only after like eight or nine months did, did people recognize that she actually wasn't enrolled at all. She was climbing in and out of her dorm through a window because she didn't have a key card. Uh, the exam she was taking, she would write someone else's name on it. Um, and so there's, I mean, if you can make it eight months at Stanford without anyone recognizing that you don't belong there, I mean, what does that tell you about, you know, how smart this girl was? Obviously, though, I mean, what she's doing isn't right. But again, I would, I would flip this on its head and say, you know, how do we evaluate a society where it's better to pretend to be at Stanford than to go somewhere else? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's this toxic culture um, that I think is in, in large part driven by these structural constraints. In other words, like, you know, Stanford's so good at teaching people, they should teach more people. They should be thinking about how do we build more campuses? How do we scale the amount of students that we can reach and help? Um, but that's the exact opposite of what schools like Stanford want to do. They want to get as selective as possible. Um, you know, enrollments haven't grown at these schools in, in any substantial way in the better part of four decades. And so what, what's happened is you have this seats cartel where all the best schools basically are racing to see to who gets to zero accept like a zero percent acceptance rate first. Um, they're not increasing enrollment. And it's sort of like OPEC or anything else. You know, the more limited the seat supply gets relative to demand, the better it is for these schools. And so this brings me to the, the second story. I was hold on, hold on, hold on. And that's just yeah, like uh, I've gotten back into watches and exactly what's happened in the last couple of years with Rolex. Right. Like they're just making a mockery. I mean, people are there's a meme about uh, selling your wife to the authorized dealer. So the AD has got to bang your wife before you can get on the wait list to get, you know, I mean, it's, it's bananas. Cause like the, yeah. the gray market prices are 300% more basically, but uh, Rolex is just like, we're not doing nothing about it. Screw it. We're going to make all this money. Our brands even going to like uh, AP levels because of uh, you know, this, this demand and the hype around it and selectivity, right? That's, um, you know, one of the persuasion, Celadini, uh, whoever his name yeah, is. Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah, um, you know, rarity or scarcity, obviously. Scarcity, right? Right, so yeah. why wouldn't these higher educations, which are businesses, I mean, how are they not businesses, the higher mm -hmm. education people? So, like, mm -hmm. aren't they doing their job? I mean, this isn't what they're supposed to do, right? No? So uh, I'll agree and disagree. So I think there is a role for, for selectivity, right? So I think um, – you know, you, you don't want to let everyone through. I mean, it has to still be some sort of signal of credibility. My critique of the schools that I make in the book is a little bit more narrow. Uh, I'm not saying they shouldn't be selective at all. What I'm saying is what they've basically done is set up a structure where they've gotten way too selective. The pendulum has swung way too far in one direction. And the way they've done this is that they've, you know, what I call colluded with U.S. News and World Report to create a rankings criteria that incentivizes each and every school to become more and more selective in order to climb in the rankings. And so they've set up this weird hub and spoke cartel where you have the rankings criteria driving what each school wants to do and how they're evaluating themselves. 
And what ends up happening is if schools had just kept the exact same standards in 1990, where the standards were very high, they would have enrolled three times, 300% more students at the elite colleges than they have. I mean, this to me is a massive deal, right? I mean, essentially, more and more students from all over the world are applying to these colleges. The colleges are sitting on a lot of money, but they're not deploying it like any other business would to build more factories or to produce more output. Instead, what they're doing is they're colluding in this weird hub and spoke structure to reduce the number of seats. And it's creating all sorts of social problems. I mean, you might have noticed that there's, a, there's an oral argument at the Supreme Court this week. And there's this big case going on, which is Asian Americans versus Harvard. Uh, you know, one of the things that I thought was so interesting is, you know, that whole case is about percentages. You know, which race gets how much percentage of seats. But the question to me isn't about percentages. It's about raw output. Why are there so few seats to begin with? I mean, to some extent, obviously, you know, they have to cap the number of seats, but it doesn't have to be so limited. There was a period in this country where Harvard and Yale used to compete to be the biggest university in the nation. You know, after World War II, there was a period where they were growing at something like 250%. Uh, and, and since then, it's basically flatlined. Um, and so this isn't natural. This isn't like Rolex, which, you know, I, I don't know the watch market that well, but I would assume that Rolex isn't colluding with its competitors so that they're all, you know, producing way less than they would, even for the purposes of selectivity. Um, but in the case of the colleges, they are colluding. That's, I think, uh, something that's really bad. It's anti-competitive. And it's not something that, that we should be encouraging. The other point I'd make, again, is yes, they are businesses, but they get a lot of public support, tax breaks, uh, research grants, subsidies. And so there's, you know, I don't think Rolex gets subsidies, right? So, I, you know, if Rolex wants to do whatever is in its best business interest, that's fine. I, you know, I don't care. Uh, with the schools, I think they have a greater responsibility to support the people who are supporting them. The, the um, company that owns... Rolex, it's a nonprofit, so they play yeah. the game too. Yeah, <laughs> but exactly. uh, um, here's what I, I have a question. Okay, let's open it up. Let's get more people in there. You know, blase, blase. I see all these TikToks now about these 23 year old, for the most part, women. They're making these TikToks like my day uh, in the life of uh, uh, t our Twitter employee because I went to Harvard yeah. and they're not doing shit. Like yeah. education to me nowadays, I mean, it doesn't matter. My life's great. Yeah. I never graduated. Like there's so yeah. many people I know and they, the famous quote, what is it? The, the um, A students work for the C students, the B students work for the, the government. Um, like <laughs> I, I just, I think um, it, we're going away from this route. Cause like, I mean, people are getting these just ridiculous degrees and being in $300,000 debt. And the only thing they can use the degree for is to teach other people, basically. I mean, that's very cliche what I just said, but the, the craziest degrees that Harvard, that all these big Ivy League school promotes I mean, mm -hmm. it's useless, a lot of this shit, right? I mean, most of the yeah. people that go to Harvard and all these schools that make money, they know people and they get into Wall Street or they get into some big company, right? They have the connections behind it. And obviously, they, they like that little Harvard thing underneath it. But I mean, I think, fuck it. It's, we're moving away from it big time because the, the education system just screwed many people. Yeah, so look, I, I don't disagree with, with some of what you're saying. I, I'd say I agree with maybe 50%. I don't think universities are the only way to have a good life. I completely agree with you. I think for people who want to take risks, who want to, you know, do things more creatively, um, it, you know, the world has never been more uh, open to them. Um, but he here's where I will disagree. I think there's certain professions, there's certain lines of work where, where credentialing does matter, right? So uh, you were talking about Twitter. Uh, I think knowledge economy jobs in general 
people who want to work on Wall Street, um, who want to do these types of jobs. Now you can say like they shouldn't want to do those types of jobs. And 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 maybe you know you might be right on that. But for people who do, this is still the best path to upward social mobility. And so I'll give you a very very simple example. I think um, you know when President Obama ran in 2007 uh, for president. Um, I don't think he could have been elected, but for the Harvard Law degree. Now, I think that says something really bad about our society, that we would have judged him to be lesser if he'd gone to Howard instead of Harvard. But I think that there is something that's really important about prestigious signals for people who otherwise would be discriminated against, right? So if you look at some of the studies of who really benefits from elite degrees and elite signals, it's actually usually people whose parents didn't go to college or people who are racial minorities who might otherwise be discriminated against or women. And so the people who actually don't benefit at all is the people who already have the connections. And unfortunately, you know, we've flipped the admissions process completely around. Those are the people that get in and all the people who would have benefited from prestigious signals don't get in. And so I think this is why we need to be thinking about expanding seats. I think you're right. It's not the only way to make it in life. I think there are a lot of other ways. But for those who want to do things in specific spheres, I think it still is one of the best paths to social mobility. And so, um, you know, I'm very much against uh, schools foreclosing that option for upwards advancement for people uh, who want to move up in the world for ambitious kids. Yeah, I don't know if I expand on that point. Okay, there's these the trend. It's like the day in the life of, and it's like a consultant for a tech company or someone that works for Twitter, and it's these people narrating their day. They went to mm-hmm. some high profile school. They're making you know two hundred and fifty grand, you know, at twenty five years old, and they're not doing shit. <laughs> they're yeah, like, yeah. okay, I go in this pod for one hour and I have a meeting, and then I go get my you know nice food at the cafe. Like, it's right. just that. That's what I was saying. And it's just um. But we're going back to the the point you made, where basically that uh, everyone besides white people, this is good for the higher education. You said, you know, the minorities, the um, the the woman and whatnot. So the straight white man. That's what I'm saying too. Like, that, that I'm glad the Asians are getting pissed at this, and it's going to supreme Supreme Court because if I had to apply for school today, I would be a transgender. I would find my ancestral past of being an African or some shit and write it all down because it's horseshit. So a lot of like, I think that white people, they have something to say, especially if you're born in the Midwest where I'm from, opportunities right. ain't great, right? I'm not born on the East Coast in uh, right. New York. Or I can see like it's, it's different. So, so that's so important. Yeah, it's getting hot, isn't it? Yeah, let, let me just make one point. So um, people who are white but are disadvantaged economically also benefit tremendously from elite credentials and elite degrees, right? So like if you're from Appalachia, like uh, J.D. Vance, and you go to Yale Law School, it opens up a whole new world for you. Um, and I think that's true largely for a lot of people who are ambitious, upwardly mobile, who want to make something of themselves, and uh, who want to go to these places and to, to crack open you know, these, these otherwise foreclosed opportunities. And so I think it is important that we, we look for more people from you know, the parts of the country that others might consider the periphery. Um, but that's what the schools need to be doing. That's why we need more seats. Because, you know, otherwise what happens is it's just a cluster fest of the same families from the same places, you know, taking up the same slots um, and, and basically locking everyone else out. Do we have enough jobs, though, for this? I mean, because we still talk, talk about all the student debt people are in now and they're not paying right. it back. It's taking a long time. I mean, is there enough jobs? Everyone's got, you know, the Harvard degree, I mean, mm-hmm. or the Ivy League nice school degree. Where's the jobs, the money? Yeah, so um, I'll make I'll, I'll, let me make a couple points. So on the student debt stuff, uh, the college cartel really does contribute to this. And the reason they do is because 
again, the, the top schools, the top 25 schools basically set the norms for the whole industry. And the way they do that, again, is, is by, you know, basically uh, implicitly or explicitly colluding with U.S. news. And so U.S. news's criteria doesn't care about efficiency, doesn't care about how you spend money, how good you are at teaching. What it cares about is spending the most for the fewest students. And that's basically how you climb up in the rankings, is spending for spending's sake, not spending on improving education, not spending on things that tangibly improve people's lives, just spending for spending's sake. And that contagion, this like spending pathology, transmits all the way up and down the college food chain, right? So if you're UVA um, and you're a public school, uh, you're still, you know, basically judged by your voting population, by your governor, on how you're doing in the U.S. News and World Report. And so this creates these terrible incentives where even public schools, even schools that should be thinking differently about themselves, are now just trying to spend more on fewer students or accept more international students who can bring in more revenue so that they can spend more, right? And so what ends up happening is because of this, like, chokehold that the top schools have, costs are going up for everyone. And I think this explains a big part of this debt crisis, which is, you know, the debt crisis wouldn't be so bad if like the risk reward made sense, right? So if college costs half as much as it does or a quarter as much as it does, they would be able to pay those loans back. The issue is at schools way down on the food chain that have been incentivized to spend more and more and more on things that you might consider useless degrees because of this cartel structure at the top, now it makes very little economic sense once you take on the debt on how you're going to be able to pay it back. So that's the first point. The second point you made was about, are there enough jobs? So look, if you go to the, one of the top 25 schools, there are jobs for you. You know, the issue isn't that the, the, the degrees and, and, the, and the things you're learning are totally useless. The, the, I think like that, you know, that's the common stereotype. But I, I think the bigger issue is for students who are going to schools um, lower in the food chain and then also not doing technical or vocational training, right? So if you're going to a school and you're and maybe you know it's it's like JMU or, or something lower in the Virginia food chain, not UVA, not Virginia Tech, um, and then you're also not you know studying something in the math, science, technology area, um, but something in the humanities, um, and then you're you know you you come out and you're like, well, where's my job? There's no jobs guaranteed, right? Um, and I think the fact that there's so much credit available. Um, it's sort of a disservice to these students because when you make that credit available, schools are going to jack up prices um, and they're just going to absorb all of that. And, and that's basically the story there also. So I think in all of these ways, you know, the college cartel has set up all these really bad incentives for schools that aren't even elite schools. Um, and it's creating a trap for a lot of students, a lot of people who have been told that college is the way up, um, who go and then they, uh, you know, encounter a very rude reality when, when they graduate. And I think we need to be doing better for our students. Um, and that's why I'm saying, you know, if we can reform this, this monster on the top, we can change some of the incentives for all the other schools. Um, you know, Abraham Lincoln uh, didn't go to college, still a great lawyer, still a great president, still a great orator, self-taught. Um, you know, there isn't just one path to success, but uh, for those who want it, I think there needs to be a viable university option. Well, I think also... The, the internet has also exposed um, kind of how much you gain from, from going to college because I didn't learn shit. So I, I did go because I had a football scholarship. I never graduated, but I took business stuff. Hold on. You want to mute yourself while I talk because that one uh, beeping in the background? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
so I did uh, the business classes and I went to junior college first. Okay. And then I went to um, a division two school in Colorado. So I'm not at freaking Harvard. Right. But these teachers didn't know shit. You know, I had done business stuff since I was very young relating to uh, real estate, selling stuff online, created uh, my own website. And I'm like, this is, this is like basic. Like you could find this on the, uh, the first page of Google. Like you guys are not telling me anything interesting, but you're charging ridiculous amounts of money. Right. And uh, again, if I, if I had to pay for that, I would think this is a crime. Like, but I didn't have to pay for it because I had the scholarship. Now, my point is too, is from my experiences in colleges and from what I see from the outside now, the only thing it is doing, which is good, is uh, you can live on your own. You can be around different people, um, grow up, you know, a sense of independence, stuff like that. I think that's fantastic. But the other thing it's doing, and this is a very conservative talking point, but it's indoctrination. They come in here and they say like, if you don't write this way or, you don't kind of, you know, step on your toes. Like people I know from my school, when uh, the Black Lives Matter shit happened, you, if you didn't go along with the stuff, you're kicked out of the school. Like, I mean, you have to follow what is going on here. And if you don't like it, boom. And then they start saying like, Oh, don't listen, you know, to what, what you, where you came from. Like, this is the way. And it just, to me, it seems like you're getting uh pigeonholed when you're in these universities. I think it's only getting worse from the stuff I see. Now, obviously now the content I see about this is exaggerated, of course, but from my experiences when I was in there and from now it's like, you're paying to become a drone and not be ready for the real world. Cause when these people get out to the real world, they want to do the pronouns and all these different things. And it's, it's not necessarily what, what it happens in real life. You understand what I'm kind of saying? Yeah. So I think, look, I think the, the broader point you're making is that there's a lot of conformity of thinking at the schools, right? Uh, all the professors think a certain way, the students think a certain way. Um, and again, you know, the point I'd come back to is look, when everyone's from the same background or more or less, right? Um, they all vacation in the same places. Uh, they all know the same people. Again, I, I would describe it as same families, same seats, uh, generation after generation. When you have such a mimetic environment where everyone's more or less like everyone else, um, sociologically, socioeconomically, then that's when you create these bubbles of conformity. Um, and the only way to break out of that is to get in more kids from what would be considered the periphery, get in more kids from Appalachia, get in more kids from Ohio. Um, people who are trying to move up in the world, but have had a vastly different experience in America. Um, and I think that's how you break some of the ideological- But they don't, promote these, they don't promote these other experiences though. They're like saying, hey, this yeah. is the one experience that we all need to get behind and conform to. That's what I've noticed, right? Like it's, it's not right. promoting different ideas anymore and challenging each other. It's like, this is where it is. And if you don't go along with all this stuff, then bye-bye, but we'll take your money. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree with you more, but again, I think this is like, because there's so few seats and the way those seats are allocated is based on these metrics that only benefit certain people. Um, what ends up happening is you basically have, you know, a class that might look not so similar, but in terms of experiences is very, very similar, right? And so only by expanding slots and making this much more competitive and open process, can we change the culture at the elite schools? And again, I think once the culture shifts at the elite schools, it trickles down. That, I think that's where the real ideological nerve center is um, and where all this conformity is coming from. And on, and on issue after issue, you know, I think the conformity has been really bad for America. Um, so look, you and I might have very different politics. I, in fact, I'm pretty sure we do, but that's fine. And I think like us being in the same place and being able to talk about that is going to at least at the very least help me better understand where you're coming from so that if I'm making a mistake, at least I'll know, well, you know what, back then someone gave me this alternative argument. Let me go and reevaluate uh, how I think about these issues. 
I think this is so important. It, it doesn't happen enough at the university level. And then I think it trickles down into Washington and Wall Street. And you end up with these financial bubbles. You end up with foreign policy bubbles where everyone's thinking all one way. We make massive blunders. We crash the economy. We get into wars we don't need to get into. And then people then switch all the other direction. And again, I, I don't think this boom bust ideological bubble uh, is really helping us. I think we need to break out of that. And this is why we need more uh, actual diversity of thinking. And therefore, we need more actual diversity in the classes of the elite universities. And that's why I think we need to expand seats so we can really bring in people who've been foreclosed. Diversity of ideas. That yep, is a I big cl cliche point. And I, I 100% hope something like that can happen because what's changed me is traveling too. You get thrown into mm -hmm. a foreign place with different languages, uh, different way of eating breakfast, uh, different way of dating. Um, obviously it shapes everything, you know, from the favelas of Brazil to right. the, to the shithole of, of Mexico. I've been into, you know, the, the La Dolce Vita of Italy, Eastern Europe. I mean, it's all different. And if you go into these places, it totally breaks all pattern recognition in your head. So you have to rethink mm -hmm. everything like, okay, boom, boom. But then you also be like, okay, damn, I still think this way, and this still makes me feel good. So I'm going to keep this. I'm going to be more uh, stern on that, but now I'm going to adapt these other different pieces I, I've learned around here, right? Because you, you're thrown into the, the unknown, and you kind of break down, and you get to rebuild yourself up with what you think works, what doesn't, what you've seen. So I definitely think they live in a bubble, the, the academic people. But here's the problem. Like, mm. I remember them talking about this because like, um, yeah, I'd say I was way more conservative when I was younger. I'd say I'm very, you know, libertarian now, but um, they were talking about like, oh, look at these crazy college people using pronouns. Or look at these crazy college talking about uh, um, the transgender stuff, right? And everyone says, oh, it's just in there. Now it's everywhere. Okay. This is mainstream stuff, right? If you don't go along with this, like then, then it's over. And it's like the academia is like, taking like the people and they go into the real world and they make things happen. They're the, the loudest voice. You know what I mean? And I just think there's some, there's extreme power in academia. And I think it's totally bought in on this one way of living that I don't necessarily think uh, translates well to the real world. So why the is there no, why is there no dis dissonant voice in academia? Why is it all the same? It's all the same. Well Right. So the, the, the argument I'd make, uh, first, the example I'd give is, is a little bit different. So like, let's take a look at 2008, right? Um, all of the people who worked at all of those banks, more or less, came out of all of the elite colleges, right? More or less. I, I, you know, the, the vast majority of them were, were all graduates of, of, you know, the top 25 schools. And so the question is, why was everyone thinking the same? Um, and why was no one sounding the alarm as the economy was taken over the edge? And then why was no one dissenting when the bailouts were happening, right? I mean, how is there so much conformity of thinking on Wall Street that led to this, like, just absolute catastrophe for millions in America and billions around the world? Um, well, the and problem again, is they got rich off it. They knew what was happening. They all got rich off it. We suffered. <laughs> They're normal people. So I think that, yeah, I, look, I think that's true for some people. But again, you know, why weren't more people making the big short trade then, right? I think there just wasn't that much dissident thinking. Um, and, and this is the, the, the point I would continue to stress is this is really bad for us because what happens at the universities when there's so much conformity of thinking around issues ends up blowing up in our face on major, major issues, whether it's war, whether it's the economy, how we're structuring our industrial policy. And so it's so important to break out of that um, at the universities. I think you made a really interesting point about how sort of traveling has changed the way you think.
right? And, and how that's been such a big driver of your personal growth. I think that's absolutely right. I think like, you know, we have to get more used to being uncomfortable with ideas because that's the only way you grow. I mean, you know, it's like your muscles don't get bigger until you put stress on them. And I think it's the same with your mind, unless there's like real stress, stress on ideas, stress on the way you think, ideological stress, you're not going to grow, you're not going to approach truth. And I think that's so important. I mean, that's the point of the universities. And again, you know, I think like a lot of this conformity at the universities is because of the way they collude, because of the way they've set up how they're evaluated with the rankings, because of the way that they've structured how admissions works. Those are all the things we need to break. I think if you break some of those things, you can break the ideological bubbles and we can like finally move forward uh, to a much healthier place as a country. Yeah, this is one of my main goals this, this past year in Poland, because um, I had been to some other former Soviet Union countries, but living here, I wanted to like really understand communism and really understand, mm -hmm. you know, what they went through, the systems in place, why they did it, talk to the old people. And obviously in Poland, you know, they hated the Russians, so they weren't totally mm -hmm. bought into the communism thing. They're kind of forced upon them. But I, uh, I also dove into it when I was in Albania for like a month and a half, like just mm -hmm. asking everyone, going to all the museums and trying to like, obviously, like Tito's going up in America. Right? What's up? That's where Tito is from, right? Albania? Tito was um, Yugoslavia. I think um, uh, uh, it was Enver Hoxha was the communist dictator there. But they okay. cut ties with everyone. They were like uh, isolated but for 40 years, Albania. But Tito was in Yugoslavia. He was taken over that or he owned that. And then uh, they were all afraid of him. So they built like... 100,000 bunkers throughout Albania because they thought for sure Tito was going to take over Albania. But so my point was, obviously, growing up in America, and I, I mean, you hate communists, right? And so I'm mm -hmm. like, but let me try to put my shoes in their or put my my feet in their shoes and see uh, what is going on here. And I learned a lot, of course. And then I came out of it. I hate communists even more. OK, but that's a point of like, you know, just trying to get these different ideas. And then maybe it does confirm what you grew up in. Right. You know, or maybe it flips it on its head and then you have a different perspective, 100 mm -hmm. percent. But, um, yeah, I think that's the problem. Right. I think the academia is in a bubble. And then I think obviously we're all in the bubble now with social media because we get the same echo chamber feed. Right. And, you know, if you watch the Fox News, you watch the CNN. So, you know, challenge yourself, of course. But, um, yeah, how do how do we solve how, how do we solve the bubble crisis? Just let everyone into the colleges then we're going to be fine or what? I think we take those professors and say, you uh -huh. better start actually teaching the real world stuff and not just get your all your money and your severances and or whatever the hell they get. And and I think they're the problem, too. I think it's the people at the top that need to start you know, being held accountable because I think they're crooks yeah. like everyone else on Wall Street. They made so much money and and done so little. I, I, well, look, I agree with you 100 percent on on that characterization. But the question is, you know, how do we get ideologically diverse people into those positions? And it's, again, you have to open up the university. That's the first step, right, into, into getting into these institutions. Um, so, so that's point number one. I think number two, you know, you asked, like, how do we break out of these bubbles? I think even zooming out beyond the universities, I think it's a really interesting question. I really like what you've been doing. I think traveling is a fantastic way to, you know, break a lot of, like, um, a lot of preconceptions, just assumptions that we have about the world. Um, traveling within the United States, traveling outside the United States. I think Eastern Europe is a trip I really want to do. I haven't done it, um, but it seems awesome. The best woman in the world, baby. You got to go. You're a good looking uh, yeah. guy. You'll have a great time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I think travel is a great way. Um, but so you were telling me that, you know, you, you've sort of been all over the world. You said you went to Brazil. Um, 
what 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 were your biggest takeaways been you know apart from from you know some of the communist stuff that, that you were just discussing my biggest takeaways i mean obviously the cliche one like everyone is quite similar with wanting you know to be happy love their family you know that kind of stuff like we're not much different of course uh my biggest takeaways i hate government <laughs> I, I think it's a total crime. I think they are the mafia with flags and um, uh, freedom is the most important thing, but a lot of people can't handle freedom. So some places need to be uh, systems need to be put in place to tell people how to live. Oh, go get your education, do your nine to five, you know, and for a lot of the population, they need that. Right. But um, you know, I'm addicted to the freedom. I'm addicted to not having some professor, some boss or some HR person tell me what to do, what to say, what to believe in. Um, I think those are, for sure, the biggest takeaways. And I think it was always in me because I've always ticked differently and done stuff outside the box. I didn't want to go down normal paths. So this kind of reinforced it. And that's why I worry that I don't go down too far the rabbit hole and turn into like a total vagabond and, you know, living out of a, a van or, you know, some hippie life. But um, this is where I feel alive the most. And obviously you need balance. So you need to find some sort of comfort. And I have certain ways that I've figured that out. But um, yeah, the biggest things I've learned is, People are pretty much the same everywhere you go besides like, you know, you know, a small percentage that are just plain evil. Right. But also that I think uh, for the most part, what the, the governments and the people that get to those positions have done is disgusting. And uh, we need to bring back the, the guillotine for a lot of them. <laughs> you're interesting. I think you're uh, you're to the left in a lot of ways and you're also to the right in a lot of ways. And that's what I think is really interesting is like, um, you know, I'm sure it's because you've traveled and you've been like exposed to so much that, you know, you're sort of like uh, left libertarian on some stuff and then uh, right libertarian on others. Um, it's really cool. Uh, okay. So let me ask you this, right? Um, can Hold you on. To add to that point, I had something funny the other day. I said, I wanted the best of both worlds. I want to live in a very conservative area where it's clean, it's safe. Uh, the people respect each other. The women take care of themselves, but then I want to be free to do whatever the hell I want to do. So no one can tell me what to do. Yeah, exactly. So I want, I want yeah. the best of both worlds. That's my ultimate yeah. goal. Yeah. Rules for you, not for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like it. Uh, okay. So, so let me ask you this. Um, you were talking about how, you know, sort of you went to university on a scholarship um, and then now you've made your way out there. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about like your trajectory? Like, you know, what's it like being an athlete and sort of like, how's that shaped your thinking? Are you going to interview me today or what? <laughs> well, look, no, I like you're shooting the shit. You talked about this. Yeah. Like at a cafe, shooting the shit. I, I like it. Actually, yeah. uh, one of your schools um, sent me a letter of interest, uh, Harvard, back when I was in high school. I said, I'm not going to Harvard. Like, I got to go to a way better school and play football. But that would have been interesting if I went down that path. I don't think I would have lasted. Actually, I wasn't a bad student. I was you know, naturally smart, but I, I don't want to study. I don't want to do all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, but, uh, no, my story is too long for the football stuff. The only reason I went to school is to play football. That was the only thing that was on my mind. And I think that is, I think when you have all your focus on one thing, it can be a good thing because so mm -hmm. many opportunities come from it. Right. You know, everyone says, okay, plan B's and, and this, but if you really just go after something, things are going to happen outside of it. Like if I didn't go after or do it, everything I've done, I wouldn't have been living this life now because now I play professionally overseas, right? And it's opened my mind up to so many different avenues of life. And wow, I, I can live 
you know, a multi multi million dollar lifestyle off, you know, two grand a month if I want to right in different parts of the world and and uh, the how it makes me feel alive and the things that I cared about when I was young. I, I don't care anymore. Right. Because you're out of this bubble and you see what really makes you tick and you got to figure things out when you're, you're all alone. Right. And you get to really see what influences you, what doesn't influence you, what you like, what you don't. And so. That was to my point of going, if you got something, if you really like, go all the fuck into it because something is going to come from it. Right. And then you can go into your plan B when that shit fails. But by then you're going to have something, you found something because you, you dedicated the time and put the work in that not many other people do for a certain thing. Right. So, um, does that answer some of your questions or no? Yeah, no, look, I think that the one area I'd build on that is like, uh, I think just get started. Um, you know, with this book that I'm writing now, it's it, it actually wasn't about the elite colleges at all when I started. When I started, it was why does college writ large cost so much in the United States? And in doing the research for this book is when I discovered all these things I never knew, like that the elite colleges collude on pricing um, and that there's a lawsuit against 17 of the most elite colleges in America for legitimately fixing prices on students. Um, I learned things like how early decision contracts and other restrictive covenants are colluded on and approved by by this cartel. I learned things about like, you know, why don't they expand seats? Why aren't they buying or building new campuses? And all of these things, none of these things were, you know, sort of how I was going into it when I when I started writing this book. Um, and I think like just getting started is exactly right. What you're saying is exactly right. I think like you just need to like take something and really commit to it for a while. And there's gonna be all these subsidiary things that you never knew that are gonna spin out of that. And, and that's how I think, um, you know, a lot of progress is made. Not everything is completely intentional at the beginning. Um, in fact, you know, some of the most successful companies ever have been accidents, total accidents. Um, and I think that's something that more and more people need to hear because, you know, too often everyone wants to have a plan um, and not enough people want to take action. And I think, uh, you know, it's better to have a bad plan with a lot of action than the best plan with none. Well, I mean, I think that always comes down to especially now when you have the instant gratification with the cell phone, the social media that shows everyone, you know, doing amazing things. And it's just like, you sit and you watch it, you're a consumer and you're like, damn, like, you know, I want to do that, but it'd be so hard. Right. Like I can't, you know, go be on a yacht in the Mediterranean right now, but it looks so cool and you get demotivated. Right. So people see this and think, you know, but you need to just start. Okay. You need to do some shit. You need to be a producer. Okay. Not a consumer. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest problem we have nowadays. Everyone wants to consume, consume, consume. Yeah. Whether it's relationships, yeah. uh, um, you know, television, Netflix, food, social media, you need to get off your ass and do something. I don't care what it is. Work out, go meditate, start, uh, reading some good books. There's just do some shit. People don't do anything. It's very annoying. And then they bitch and cry on these, these platforms because of it. But yeah, where that where where do you find your time to write a book? So that's really interesting too. So you're in the Columbia. What do you study? What do you even talk about this? Yeah, so uh, I'm in the law school now. I just started. Um, you know, the reason I wanted to come to law school is because I really want to uh, dig my my like you know my hands into antitrust. I think this is an area of the law that is that has been like sort of forgotten. Um, there hasn't been enough progress in antitrust for the longest time, um, and it actually goes back to your point. Uh, about, you know, be a producer, don't be a consumer. A lot of the ways uh, antitrust died is because courts started interpreting these laws uh, only from the point of view of consumerism. Um, you know, can we, can we squeeze a couple cents off the price here, a, a couple cents off the price there? 
But in so doing, what they did is they created these massive, massive behemoth industries that squeeze all the people who actually produce the goods, right? So if you're a farmer, and I don't know if you saw this, but Albertsons and Kroger are trying to merge these two massive grocery chains. If you let them merge, just imagine how much buying power they're going to have over these farmers. And so the producers are going to get squeezed. To, and, and this is basically the story of rural America is in industry after industry, in meatpacking, in retail, in, uh, in, you know, in seeds, in, in fertilizer, you've created these massive basic monopolies or cartels that have so much buying power, they can squeeze all the people who produce. And we call it efficiency because it somehow slightly benefits the consumer. Most of it goes towards profit. A little bit uh, comes off the top on the cost, but the actual damage is never factored in. And the, and the damage is we've created slums in America where life expectancy is lower than many places in the third world. And so I think antitrust is a great way to tackle a lot of these things. What we want is a competitive economy where everyone you know, has the option to sell to multiple people so that everyone can get a good price or a fair price. Um, and, and that's not really what we have. Um, and so, again, I think we need to reframe how we're thinking about the economy. It should be about how are we producing? How are we moving? How are we actually driving innovation in technology? Not how are we squeezing the people most vulnerable? Um, that's not that's not efficiency. Uh, that's just exploitation. That's hundred percent, dude. Like the 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 older you know people, they wanted to have lots of Christmas presents for us, so they're doing it out of, of good faith. You know, they want to buy their kids a bunch of shit. So what did they do? Yeah. China revved up, and we bought all this cheap shit from China. Yeah. And our local businesses, so we saved five dollars from Amazon or you know Walmart, just went out. Went out of business, okay? Yeah. And now, I mean, so the consumer needs to take some blame too, right? I think it'd be good if there's more like education about this out there. So instead of going to the store and, and buying everything from China, you know, try to buy some local stuff. Like when I go travel, you know, when I, when I first started doing it, you know, you want to get little souvenirs, right? And I start realizing, I'm like, this shit is made in China, but I bought it in, in Rome. Why am I buying this, right? I need yeah. to go to the local leathersmith guy and yeah. get something that was, you know, handmade in Italy. Obviously, it's going to be a little more expensive, but... Like that's what the people got to start switching their mind. But this is this is the problem with capitalism and like the hyper consumerism that is the USA. So that's another thing I learned big time about living more intentionally and minimalistic, you know, outside the USA. But it's the best thing and the worst thing about the USA. It's the reason we put a flag on the moon. It's the reason everyone listens to our music. It's the reason we have so much money. But it's also the reason we're so fat. It's also the reason we're not culture. It's also the reason that it's, you know, the, the most guns in the world, like, uh, you know, all the shooting deaths, right? It's like this extreme, the land of extremes, because I think it's tapped into the, the best of capitalism mm -hmm. and the worst of capitalism. And, you know, but that comes down to the individual too, right? And, but here's the problem. I think a lot of people are just stupid, okay? And, you know, we're all persuaded some way, right? And it's hard to like, you know, who knows if there's free will and, and what, but I really do think if you can just somewhat open your brain or just get out of your um, autopilot mentality, get out of your regular routine, you can start seeing things a, a little uh, uh, differently. But the capitalism in the USA is the best thing and it's the worst thing, 100%. Do, do you watch UFC? UFC? Yeah. Are you into No, but I think I might start getting into it, man. It does look cool. Yeah. Okay, so what's interesting to me about UFC is I think it's, a, it's like a perfect frame on, on everything you just said. Um, because on the one hand, I think it's a great product. The fights are really entertaining. It's awesome. Uh, on the other hand, it's exactly this sort of like, uh, monopoly culture that I've been talking about, right? Like, so what UFC does is it signs all of its fighters to these super restrictive non-competes so that they can't go anywhere else. And when you have 90% market share, 
and you're just trying to get into the fight game to begin with, I mean, you're going to sign that contract, right? At, at that point, you're very vulnerable. They have a lot of buying power over you. And so they get you to sign the stuff. And what's happened is basically UFC has become this like dominant, dominant monopoly and no one can come in and compete for those same fighters. And so in UFC, the, the average fighter gets like 20% of ticket sales. In every other sport, in the NFL, in the NBA, it's closer to 50, sometimes even higher percent. And so they're clearly being very underpaid for what they're doing. I think they're taking on a ton of physical risk and, and they should be compensated for that. I mean, but for the fighters, like what exactly, what value is UFC bringing to the table apart from having all the fighters under one roof? Look, I think like they should get something. It should be a profitable business, but you shouldn't get 80% of the value when the fighters are producing, you know, the vast majority of it. And when in all of these other sports, they're getting closer to half. Um, and so, again, this is another area where I think antitrust should be applied. So we break some of these restrictive covenants. Let the fighters compete. Let them let people compete with UFC. If they're going to offer you a better deal, you should be allowed to go and fight there. Um, I think that's similar with uh, with golf, with PGA Tour, and now the Saudis are, are building Live. Um, look, if the Saudis hadn't done Live, it wasn't going to happen because the golf covenants are so restrictive that you can't go anywhere else. There's nowhere else to go. Um, it's a complete monopoly. Um, Isn't that what you're saying, of, though? Isn't that what yeah. you're saying, though? So this is like yeah. Dana White. You know, he put uh, fighting again on the map besides boxing. I mean, that was the yeah. biggest thing ever, right? right. And right. Uh, the fighters weren't making that great of money before UFC either, right? Yeah. Now the top guys, yeah. you know, make all the money. But Gregor became the biggest superstar, you know, shit right. on how much money UFC was making, basically. Yeah. I love how Jake Paul calls out, calls out Dana White. He's doing a good yeah. job trying yeah, to yeah, yeah. Um, do some stuff like that. He's a smart yeah. kid. But yeah. so you're telling me though, okay, how we break it up. Okay. Well, we, we get the, the bureaucrats in there and say, Hey, here's some rules now and you got to start doing this. And like, that's yeah. where it gets slippery on me. You know what I mean? Cause then you got Is some it, people that didn't build this business. They didn't make yeah. it as big as Dana White did it and saying, okay, nope, now you're too successful and, and boom. So, and there's a balance. So like, where is it? Yeah. I don't know, but I have a problem with someone coming and telling me after I built this massive thing and it's benefited a lot of people. It's, mm -hmm. and it really has and now you want to put mm -hmm. your hands in it because you're you you study antitrust at columbia fuck you know what i mean like you, that's what you, I would no, no, no. look a completely fair argument here's the point i make and you know i actually do agree with you where i don't like over regulation okay i don't like when bureaucrats come in and make like 10 different rules and all these ambiguities all this nuance and all this stuff so here's my really simple solution ban restrictive non-competes plain and simple very simple rule there are things you should be allowed to do things you shouldn't be allowed to Right. If you have, you know, people you know, being forced to sign these non-competes in these entertainment sports, I mean, for what reason? The only reason is to benefit UFC. It, it, it's just why should they be allowed to tell these fighters where they can and can't fight? I mean, I would actually reframe it. Right. It's like, uh, you know, it, it's not government that's being oppressive here. I, I think it's the monopolies. Um, and, and it's just about, you know, the question is, like, whose point of view um, are you going to take? Are you going to take Dana White's point of view? Um, or are you going to take the fighter's point of view? The guy who wants to make it, wants to like uh, put food on the table for his family. I think that's the point of view that's more important to take. I, look, I agree with you, you know. Uh, you don't want these fancy lawyers coming in with their suit. Some guy built a great business and completely schlonging the business. I agree with you. Um, but that's why I think we just need to have clear, simple rules. Enough of the over-regulation. And unfortunately, when we don't have those types of clear, simple rules, that's when the over-regulation happens because the pendulum swings too far in the other direction. 
hundred percent, dude. And you see this with like the music industry and, and all that, right. the contracts they sign these people for, because they're the only people that can get their voice out. So right. you sign, you sign the deal with the devil and you're, yeah. you're a little puppet with them. And, and I see with content now too, like the whole color daddy saga, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but Barstool blew her up, right? They, they yeah. totally did everything. And then she started hearing stuff from other people like, oh, this mm -hmm. is wrong. But they wanted a cut of it. And then she ended yeah. up, you know, getting 60 million out of that. But she screwed them big time. But she was making so much money. Right. So, like, mm -hmm. I think it's always going to be a healthy fight. Like what you're talking about. OK, we can't let it get too big. So, like, Amazon's taking over the world. But we, we can't uh, um, halt, you know, innovators right. and people that are creating. And so they're, they're always going to be right. battling. But the people that are yeah. fighting the other people. They want money too. Like they're not just yeah. doing it for the public good. They're right. they're getting something out of it too. So maybe that right. is the the goodness of capitalism. I don't know, but that's why I run away from everything and, and build my own life on the road. So I like it. Look, I, I I agree with you. I think that you know it's it's sort of the cyclical thing, right? Um, you I couldn't agree with you more. You want to support people at the beginning as much as possible, completely hands off. You know, to to the extent you can open up markets, you want to do that. And this is also why I think antitrust is really interesting. Um, look, there might be a better format than the UFC rules, but we'll never know because no one, none of those fighters will ever be able to take their talent to any other sector, right? And so it's similar to, you know, there might be a better use of voicemail than hiding in a closet, but we didn't know until AT&T was broken up in 84. And that's when, you know, modems were invented and that's how we got the internet to happen in the United States. All of this technology that became the internet, a lot of it was stored in Bell Labs, but the executives at AT&T didn't want it out because they thought it would hurt their calling business. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, some of this like short-sighted uh, sort of thinking is, is what's holding us back. That's, how, that's what's holding the next wave of entrepreneur from coming in and just blowing things up. I mean, how much have we benefited from the internet? This conversation that we're having a world away uh, would not have been possible I think, but for that breakup, or certainly it would have been decades off. And so, you know, in all of these ways, I, I agree with you, dude. I, I want to like open up markets. I want to open up opportunities for people. And I hate heavy handed regulation. Um, the question is, who do you want, you, you know, doing that? The question is, is regulation by Dana White or regulation by AT&T any better than regulation by a bureaucrat? I don't know. Those are bureaucrats too. It's just, we think of them as, as private individuals. Um, and so there has to be that balance. And this is uh, the main issue with the colleges, the cartel. You think right. they need to get blown up a little bit or what? Exactly right. I mean, look, all of the things we're talking about, you know, restrictive covenants, they do that with early decision, um, you know, where, where they force you, if you apply and get into a school, to not be able to go to any other school, even if you get in, so that they can, you know, basically make sure that you have no bargaining power. Um, that's completely anti-competitive. They do that by doing the seat cartel where they're reducing output artificially by colluding on the rankings for them. They do it by legitimately fixing prices on financial aid. I mean, there's a lawsuit making its way through court right now just on this point. The elite colleges, the colleges that get all the tax breaks, all the subsidies, all the exemptions, these are the schools that are turning around and screwing the people who just want to make it in America. Um, and I think it's the most disgusting story uh, that the media is not covering at all. It's why is there so few seats in the elite college cartel? And why does it cost so much per student? Until we answer those two questions, I mean, higher education is never going to get fixed. And I'd love to see people on both sides of the aisle do something on this issue. I think some of the really simple solutions, um, and, and we can maybe end it on this, is what we need to do 
is, is just like in the UFC context or the PGA context, ban all these restrictive covenants. So no early decision, no non-competes that stretch on for decades and stuff like that. Ban all of that. Um, and number two, uh, ban collusion. Schools shouldn't be allowed to collude on pricing. I mean, it's not that crazy, uh, you know, an idea that schools should compete and that they shouldn't collude. Um, when you have, you know, 50 billion in your endowment, 40 billion, 10 billion, you don't need to collude to screw the middle class kid whose parents make 150K, right? I mean, you don't need all that bargaining power against that student, especially when there's already such a scarcity of seats. And the last thing I'd say is to beat the scarcity of seats, um, I think, you know, we need someone who gets really aggressive on taxing their endowments until they expand the number of seats that they offer. If they don't expand more seats, tax them. Tax them until they don't want to get taxed anymore and they and and the seats have, have expanded dramatically. Um, because in the absence of that, schools are just going to keep taking advantage of the subsidies of the charity and, and do nothing uh, to, to fix some of these structural problems. Beautiful. Good. I love it. Aren't you worried that you're going to get in a little trouble for this book or no? Uh, it's good trouble. I don't mind it. Okay. Is this, was it part of like a thesis or what was it? You're just on your own. You're going to write this thing. Yeah. I, look, I want right after I graduated from undergrad, I want to take some time, um, to think about a problem and see if I could come up with something really original, uh, that I thought was missing from the discourse. Because like you, um, you know, one of the things that, that bothers me is I think there's too much conformity of thinking in, in all sorts of areas. And so there definitely is a higher education bubble, right? People don't really think there's that much wrong with higher education. I don't understand why they think that when we have this massive debt problem, uh, when there are all these problems at the universities. I mean, there's just not that much original thinking about what's wrong with the universities. And so I want to take some time to really think about it. And, and you know, like you said, you just get started and you end up with all of these different opportunities that come along the way. And that's sort of what happened with me. That's how this book got started. Um, and, you know, drawing on some of my experiences, uh, applying to college, going to elite colleges, um, I, you know, I, I had a, a lot of background on this issue and uh, it's become a book that's that's going to come out this winter. You said Wednesday? Winter, this winter. Winter, winter. Yeah. No, beautiful, man. I think uh, I'm very grateful we got people like you, you know, doing this. And uh, I think uh, I hope it, it, it spreads like wildfire. You got to keep getting on the podcast. And hopefully it gets to the mainstream media. But um, I think you have beautiful points. I think it's a discussion that needs to be had. I like mavericks who live bold, who try to, you know, go after the status quo. And um, I, I hope to stay in touch and I, I'm going to wish you the best. So, Look, I feel the same way. Best of luck with everything you got going on and uh, keep traveling. I will do. And then we'll link um, like a website or some sort of your stuff. Well, if you want to say that right now, otherwise I'll put it in the, the, the bio and whatnot. Yeah, sure. So look, if, if you um, are someone who's listening to this and who thinks that the elite colleges shouldn't be allowed to collude on pricing, I have a petition out. Um, you can go to www.breakthecartel.com. Um, it's a change.org petition. Uh, it just explains how they collude, you know, how it screwed a lot of middle-class students, um, and is a simple call for Congress to ban price fixing uh, by elite colleges. Um, so please do go ahead and, and sign that petition. Um, apart from that, you can find me on Twitter at Hodge Sharda, and you know, I'll provide that to, to our friend here. And, um, you know, the book is going to come out this winter, um, you know, just by following me, you can, you can, uh, basically stay tuned for that. Break the cartel, baby. Live bold. Ciao, ciao.